Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by SeatGeek. That's our presenting sponsor, the easiest way to shop for tickets thanks to their revolutionary grading system. Buy and sell tickets in just two taps on your phone. Everything fully guaranteed. Hey, football fans, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on NFL tickets, use promo code BSNFL. I might have, good one, right? I might have used that last week for Rams, Cowboys, and the Coliseum. You did? Preseason, baby. $20 off. They probably paid you to take the tickets for preseason. <laughs> Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. And thanks to SeatGeek for taking care of my son and my dad Friday night. First Fenway Park trip ever, which we'll talk about when we talk to Jason Gay here on the Sports Reporters special uh, special podcast today. But uh five-hour baseball game. Wow. The rarely you actually want the five-hour baseball game when it's your first baseball game. <laughs> but he got that great Red Sox one. Whole thing was awesome. Thank you, SeatGeek. We're also brought to you by Miller Lite, the presenting sponsor of our newly relaunched website, theringer.com. They are the official beer of the ringer. That reminds me of Miller Lite. Send us some beer. We're out. There's no beer in that fridge in the office. Oh, absolutely. Nothing in Come there. Come on, Miller Lite. Send us something. Uh, it is also South Week on the ringer. I think we have five pieces of, including the dramatic return of Rembert Brown. Amazing. Wow. By God, that's Rembert Brown's music. Good, literally. Good God. Uh, so that was awesome. The Ringer NFL show heating up. Football's coming. I would recommend listening to that. The Rewatchables, we've done two. Few Good Men and The Departed, our newest movie podcast. And we have another one coming this week. Let's just say Keanu Reeves is involved in this week's episode of The Rewatchables. And Talk the Thrones, our last episode is coming up because the last episode of this half season of Game of Thrones is Sunday night. Talk the Thrones. Mallory Rubin was shaken and almost in tears last night. I was worried about her sanity, health, everything. After I could only imagine because I was standing up during yeah. the climax, which I only do for sporting events. Yes. But I had this, I got up. You know, I got out of bed and I was just standing it in front of the like television. It did feel like a sporting event. Really so they, they're at this whole other level of Game of Thrones. I watched that show for what it was, which was just really entertaining. Sure. They're like, no, this is it. the character. And I'm like, I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm just, this is a popcorn movie for me, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I also see all their points too. Anyway, Talk to Thrones, hashtag Talk to Thrones if you want to jump in. I don't know if we're doing a pregame show or a postgame show or both or what's happening. Last but not least... um, I may or may not be doing a, a podcast with Kevin Durant this week. Ooh, part and four. I want to throw this out there for, for the for the listeners. Email us at the mailbag at the ringer.com. I was gonna do a little mailbag part of the pod with KD. Now, don't send me emails like, hey KD. Like I'm not gonna read those to him. But if you here's access to one of the two best players in the world, a, a finals MVP. Um, one of the best 20 players of all time now, and he's super candid guy. And if you want to ask him NBA questions, send them to us at the mailbag at the ringer.com. We will shoot some of them at him. You want legit questions, not the conventional Simmons mailbag question where it's yeah. a really funny thing. And then it ends in this oh, you little, can do those too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You I might can do one whatever in. you want, but don't do insulting questions. Cause we're not going to read those, but if you want, <laughs> we have this natural resource Who's ready to talk about basketball? And if you have questions, ask me anything. Ask, ask Kevin him. anything. Ask ask Kevin anything. AKA Jason Gay coming up. But first, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famers Pearl Jam. All 
All right, we are taping this on the day of the eclipse. Yet another overrated media manufactured event. It's, it's content. It's an episode of the Sports Reporters. Oh my gosh. Brian Curtis, editor at large, The Ringer. Jason Gay, um, America's editor at large from the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. And uh, the Sports Reporters was brutally murdered by ESPN a couple months ago. And we decided, yeah, we, we got to start trying to do this once a month now that summer's ending. Yeah. And you we got any parting shots. Jason's the only one who wrote a parting shot today, I think. You did. We're going to let him read it, though, right? Yeah, at the end. And we'll giggle uh, We'll giggle like every 20 seconds like they used to on the sports yeah, reporters, yeah. remember? Big belly laughs. I, I, I also think I'm the only one with a blazer and a tie on. Is that is that true? Yeah. Right now? Are you yeah. going Are you going somewhere? I mean, I, I have a bathing suit underneath, but I have the blazer <laughs> and the tie for the camera shot. All right. We're going to rip through these these. Uh, <laughs> A lot of good sports reporters uh, for August, especially topics. Yeah, wow, August. I thought um, I thought you made a good point. You wrote about Mayweather McGregor today, and you were talking about the three biggest sports events right now all have nothing to do with sports, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really what what August is made for. But Mayweather McGregor has become this manufactured gigantic event that people are either feeling guilty about being excited for being shamed into not being excited for it. But everyone is agreeing they're all going to watch it, but it's turned into this, uh, this moral judgment, which I don't totally understand. Can I pay my $89 and watch it? Yeah. I think, I think we've all come to this conclusion, right? That we all feel shame at some level, either high shame or low shame, but we're all in. We've justified it because we are America's content providers, right? And this is content this week. NFL preseason, eh, not really. Yep. Charlottesville fading from the scene. The eclipse will be over in minutes. Mayweather McGregor. <laughs> That's it. Great weekend. The weekend before Labor Day. There's nothing ever going on in sports. Jason, where do you stand on this fight? That's the funny thing. First of all, Bill, you're going to go for the standard definition at $89. You're not going to go the 10 bucks extra for the high def. <laughs> oh, my bad. 99 Whatever, Whatever the highest price is, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, when this was announced, like everybody, I thought it was just this like crazy cockamamie stunt, and I didn't even get the date. As you said, this is sort of a weird time of the year to have schedule anything. You wouldn't want to go to a wedding on August 26th. Yeah. Uh, and yet, there's some genius to this. I mean, we've talked about this before, but very quiet summer, no World Cup, no Olympics, nothing really substantial happening. They basically had the run of the last eight weeks, that, that, that press conference thing, which I agree with you, Brian. I too rewatched some of that stuff, and it's it's pretty tough to watch, and it's pretty actually dull for all the hype that it got. But man, like I felt like sports radio should have been cutting these guys a check for all the free content and argumentation they've been able able to have for the last couple of months. Well, you talk about we the one that said we had Mayweather McGregor, we have Labar Ball. No, that was that was gay in an email. Oh, that was Jay. Yeah, what were the three you had, Jason? <laughs> well, it's the summer of you know sports arguments without sports. You have Mayweather and McGregor, which is a stunt. Yeah. You have LeVar Ball, who is a sports dad. I mean, I know it's connected, of course, to a son. And then you have the Kaepernick debate, which I feel is a really important social uh, conversation to have about what's happening in this country, but also not really a pure sports topic. It's basically been the loudest voices in the room for the past eight weeks, and I can't help but wonder if this is somehow connected to the climate that we're living in now that... You know, in order for anything to get any traction and for people to be having, you know, significant conversations, especially in the media, it has to be a very, very loud, volatile topic. I think 
anytime something has sides, that's where the argument seems to capture the 24-7 cycle. If it's like, you can take this side or you can take this side. That's why Kaepernick, which just should not be going on as at the height that it's gone on for months and months and months here. That's why it's still yeah. going. And that's why just yeah. entire sports shows are revolving around this topic. Yeah, I think if Trump has done anything, it's not make people louder because we've had loud probably for a long time, but it's make made what you said, the idea of sides a bigger, there's a brighter line. We've always yeah. done sides. Pete Rose in the hall of fame, Pete Rose, not in the hall of fame. That that's like yeah. an eternal sports argument, but I feel that the sides get more pronounced. You're more dug in and you're willing to say more maybe on each side in the Trump, in the age of Trump. You're so it's becoming more like debates. It's like, be, be like that Kirk Cameron debate movie. You just got to pick your side <laughs> and really, really yell and argue it versus. But don't you think. Oh, go ahead. Don't you think there's something about the volume here and the acidity here? I mean, I went to the uh, Mayweather-McGregor press conference in Brooklyn, which of all the press conferences they had was probably the worst. And Leonard Ellerby, who's one of Mayweather's guys, was giving a press conference beforehand saying, like, look, these guys are saying you know terrible things. I know they're not saying the most politically correct things. And, and boy, they really didn't. I mean, it was pretty ugly at points. But he's like, this is what it takes now. This is what people want. This is what... Um, the world is about now. This is the currency. And, you know, part of me wants to roll my eyes and say, God, I hope that's not true. But there might be some reality to this, that that, that a generation now has passed of, I really sound like a sports reporter now, but like a generation <laughs> of the reality television has passed now where, you know, the, the world has sort of learned its lesson that in order to get attention, in order to grab eyeballs, that you do have to be loud and abrasive and caustic and you know, we've learned it in politics and virtually everything else now. I, I think the the one thing I'd say to that, and I got into this in my piece a little bit today, was Jerry Cooney, Larry Holmes, 1982, Bill? 1982. Yeah. That was this fight actually worse. And in terms of being out there and being loud and being selling it in abjectly racial and racist terms, that was yeah. this fight. So I don't yeah. know that that's so. I think part of the Mayweather McGregor thing, right, is is it's the bar bet. You know, we will this would this guy beat this guy? Of course. This is the living. This is Michael Phelps versus the shark. If the shark had been profiled by Wright Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Holmes Coney was interesting. I was glad you brought that up in the piece. There was this really strange time in American sports history, and I wrote about some of it in my book. From basically. I think it almost started with with the first Rocky movie in 76 and carried all the way through that Holmes-Cooney fight. And you you read it when you read the old Sports Illustrated features, some of the books, when you look at how certain things were covered, there, there was this underlying mentality that like blacks are taking over sports. What are we going to do? And you read like all the old NBA stuff like the famous Sports Illustrated piece that we've discussed on this podcast multiple times where it's like, what does the NBA do? How do they sell this all black league to white fans? And there was this weird panic that when you read it now, it's incredible. You link to a couple of those Holmes Cooney pieces that are just staggering to read. It's like, yeah. we don't even know if Cooney's that good, but he's the great white hope we need. It's like, what? <laughs> he's with Rocky on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah, and Rocky, I mean, you look at some of the sports movies that they were making back then, and Rocky's like, Apollo Creed was this Muhammad Ali champ, but 
you know, those first two movies, yeah, it's a Muhammad Ali versus the average man. That Those are the first two movies. The third movie is just racial. <laughs> this is like Clubber Lang from the streets. He's the, the blackest contender possible. And he's just too, he's too dominant for Rocky. And Rocky's now got to go back to the streets. And he's got, I mean, it's really a crazy movie to rewatch. And somehow one of my favorite movies. But, um, but that was that era. This this whole Mayweather uh, McGregor thing is 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 seemed to pulling out some of the old DNA of that. Yes. Yeah, I think so. In an uncomfortable way. Hmm. Sort of like how could you? How, I don't think we could go quite as far. At least at least the sanctioned bodies and journalists wouldn't go quite as far as you say that they would in 1982. Well, they wouldn't put McGregor on the cover and be like the great white hope we need. Like that just isn't happening. But there is that kind of covert sense of that here. And, you know, when McGregor is saying dance for me, boy, at the press conference and saying it multiple times. I mean, yeah. I, I don't what, what else do you take away from that? I mean, what's what yeah. what is that is not the subtext. That is the text. Yeah. And that's yeah. not, and uh, not running away from it at all. The promotion not running away from it all, you know, embracing that, frankly, and uh, trying to goose attention for the fight. So, well, this, yeah, I mean, I think that there are elements of this, you know, to this day, absolutely. It does seem it's it's. I mean, I I never enjoyed the press conferences and they made me uncomfortable. But now, when you look at what's happened in the country the last couple of weeks, this fight in that context, the way they promoted it, seems a little more insidious. It does. By the way, you yeah, talk about 82 being this kind of last gasp of, you know, white supremacy, you know, in sports. Oh, you know, we're losing we're losing our we're losing our, our hold on this. We're on losing this our turf. And and yet we talk about the Trump stuff in the same way. This last gasp. There should have been a lot of last gasps in American history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we keep gasping, gasping and gasping. Oh, oh, this is his last gasp of this white establishment. Well, what, what this keeps happening. <laughs> yeah. So, well, 2017, we, we thought it was uh, going to be over by now. Right. But no. I mean, and keeping, you know, in mind that this is a podcast of uh, three middle-aged white guys. I mean, the <laughs> Kaepernick the Kaepernick story, I mean, races at the front and center of the Kaepernick dialogue. Whether or whether or not you believe that there's a football issue, it's undeniably part of what has kept this issue in front and center. It's it's a um you know, it's undeniable. What we're losing now is the nuances. And I think yeah. part of it is how opinions are marketed, even on a place like Twitter, where you see the headlines now, and it's the headline tries to capture whatever the writer wrote in six or seven words. And you, I look at something like the Kaepernick thing, and I think that it's such a complicated story. It's a guy who, first of all, when you look at some of the quarterbacks who are starting for some of these teams, like Jacksonville has a Blake Bortles, Chad Henney quarterback <laughs> battle right now. And you look at that and you go... Kaepernick hasn't played really that well in four years, but he has played well at some point in his life during that Super Bowl run, the famous Packers game. And it seems like at least give him a whirl. So you just like, you take everything out of it. It's like hard to believe they wouldn't at least try him and see what it would be like. On the other hand, like we went through this with Tim Tebow five years ago where no, but no NFL team seems to want to take a chance on a backup quarterback who's going to get an inordinate amount of publicity and attention. The Tebow thing established that the, the coaches, they, they just don't, they don't want the reporters every day. Why isn't he playing? Is he going to play? Oh, he threw three passes today. They want to steer clear of that. So that's an established track record of, we don't want our backup quarterback getting attention. But on the flip side, 
Kaepernick is probably a starting quarterback, even though he's not very good. I don't think he'd win a Super Bowl, but he's better than Blake Bortles. No so question. I see all the sides of this, but it has turned into the sports argument where it's either like you have to be all the way on one side or all the way on the other side. It seems like it's a lot more complicated on that. What do you guys think? I think this age of media and sports media, there's both less nuance and more nuance at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we would have gotten like the statistical proof of how good Kaepernick was that Bill Barnwell wrote or we wrote on The Ringer or wherever in the same way. 10, 20 years ago, and then we wouldn't have gotten as many nuanced columns from as many people. But then, there, of course, there's Twitter and the president of the United States, by the way, is talking about Colin Kaepernick. Right. I mean, this is different from Tebow. Well, Obama did not come out and say, I don't think Tim Tebow should have a job. And any, <laughs> right. any NFL owner is going to have to answer to me yeah. if he hires Tim Tebow to be the quarterback because I don't believe in Tim Tebow. I mean, that's what Trump said. Yeah. There have been so many Trump things since that was, I think, March, I want to say April, somewhere in there. We're now have forgotten about that. Yeah. But Donald Trump said, don't hire this quarterback or, or else. I mean, that that's just incredible. Yeah. And on top of it, this social issue element of it has become such a exploding cigar for the NFL and for NFL ownership. I mean, they've tried to control it. If you believe that there has been some sort of collusion to keep Colin Kaepernick off a roster, now you have players across the league, high-profile players, players who are beloved, like Michael Bennett, Marshawn Lynch, who are also doing protests now. I mean, the idea that they were going to somehow contain this by keeping a guy who seems eminently qualified to at least be a backup in the NFL. And we're really crossing the streams here, by the way, Bill, comparing Tebow to Kaepernick, because I, I think there were compelling football issues with regard to Tim Tebow's capacity to play in the NFL. I mean, I don't want to outrage Tebow Nation. He's a sweet, sweet man. But I don't think that you know, from a uh, playing quarterback standpoint, Colin Kaepernick's resume is quite deeper. True. Uh, but the social element of this, uh, it's just uncontainable. And so the notion that somehow you were going to be able to just keep a guy out of the league to teach a lesson or something like that was just preposterous from the jump. And it shows how, again, it's sort of, points to everything we were talking about at the top, that you know we are in a climate now where politics touches everything. The idea that somehow you can insulate yourself uh, in the sports world from it, that's just not manageable. You hear all the time from people, you know, I wrote about Kaepernick last week, got bombarded with email from people saying, look, I don't want this in my football, you know, like, like peanut butter, and, you know, whatever. You just, I don't want these things combined. You can't help it nowadays. This is the climate that we live in. Politics touches everything. He was really bad two years ago because I remember picking against them every week because of how bad he was. And it just seemed like he had completely lost his confidence, his mojo, everything. Like he seemed like a guy on the way out of his league. Last year, he was a little bit better. I, the, the interesting thing about Tebow to me, if, if there was none of the Tebow mythology that went with him, I actually think he would have been an interesting second or third quarterback for a team because his style was so distinct that when he came in and the scrambling, it was almost like this change of pace type thing. Some teams use their backup quarterbacks that way. Other teams want their quarterbacks to be a carbon copy of the guy they have. But I do think there was a place in, in the NFL for him. And there's clearly a place in the NFL for Kaepernick. Like at the very least, he's somebody that if you had a team like Seattle – where they have a quarterback who likes to play and roll out and do stuff, you would think Kaepernick would be a logical backup for them. And obviously they didn't want it. I don't believe the collusion thing though, because 
I think these guys are too rich and too smart to do something that stupid. If that came out, do you know how much money that would cost them? Like the kind of suit that he could do against the NFL. I really, I, I find it hard to believe that these guys all are on some group owner text slack saying like, stay yeah, some slack and stay away from slack. Kaepernick. Yeah. Let's all agree not to sign him. I don't think they think that way when they could all come to the what same. What do you think? What did you think about what they did down in Baltimore where, you know, according to reports, you know, you had both Harbaugh and Ozzie Newsom okay with the idea of signing him, feeling he was a great candidate. And then the owner of the Ravens, Steve Piscotti, coming out and basically saying, we want fan input. We want the fans to tell us what you think, which basically seems to be a flag that they wanted the fans to freak out and give them cover for not signing a guy who was very qualified to quarterback their team. I thought that was really shaky. And especially that owner who was one of the tightest owners with Goodell. And that was one of the times when I was thinking to myself, man, I wonder if, I wonder if Goodell quite, kind of quietly told everybody not to do it. Who knows? What do the owners say? Pray for us. <laughs> <In Baltimore. laughs> Pray for us to help us make right. this roster decision. Can I, can I give another weird media angle to yeah. Kaepernick, which I think is a little bit underrated? Please do. Um, he hasn't talked to anybody for the last several months. And he's talked to Dave Zirin, but about community organizing and not football and not, not being signed by the NFL. You've seen Peter King and Albert Breer both bring this up. Yeah. We are so used in the sports media. When a situation like this happens, you go to the sympathetic magazine writer, the magazine writer writes the sympathetic profile that tells your side of the story. He's not judgmental, but it is, you know, very clear that he is telling your story in the magazine, either as an, as told to, or just as a normal piece. He hasn't done that. And I think that's sort of blown a lot of long form people's minds because it's like, yeah, it's you're cry- the perfect profile. The market is crying out for that profile. Right. And every magazine writer who is worth anything would love to tell that story. But he is refusing Forget to Forget about it. the profiles. Forget about the profiles. The Players' Tribune can't even Sure, get exactly. And so it's like there's this, and everybody keeps saying, well, he hasn't talked. He needs to talk. He needs to tell NFL teams. what. But that, what they, when they say talk, they mean talk through me. <laughs> talk right. through my yeah. writing. And I just find yeah. that very funny. And I find it, and I don't know why he hasn't done it other than he just doesn't want to do it. But I find it funny. He's not going through that media ritual that we all know so well. Or, or this whole thing has broken him a little bit, or he's become a little more enchanted by the celebrity aspect of what his life's become. And he's out there and doing a whole bunch of stuff. Or he doesn't trust someone to do it. I mean, it's like, you know, Maybe. he doesn't need Peter. doesn't think he needs Peter King to tell a story. I don't know. If, if, if I, I mean, I, I, I can't take the sort of like he has to be, you know, sort of both sides of the mouth, it seems to say, like, this guy needs to make a statement. This guy needs to give an interview. And at the same time saying we don't want him to be a distraction. It's, you know, <laughs> right. one or the other. Yeah. It's and, true. And, exactly. and, and, and I but, but but the one thing that I think that, you know, him putting a little bit of more of a uh, public face on himself would help is he's put his money where his mouth is. I mean, this is a guy who has thrown, I guess, a million dollars plus now into community organizations, you know, being very mobile in terms of the issues that he cares about. And I was shocked by the amount of reader mail I got from people who are saying, look, if this guy has a problem, you know, instead of kneeling for the anthem, he should be giving money to causes. Like, well, he is giving money for causes. He's actually doing what you want him to do. Uh, the fact that that ha- message hasn't gotten out to people, I think, is a reason for him to maybe be more public. But he's under no obligation to do that. And again, like, if we're buying into the notion that teams don't want backup guys to be distractions or any guy to be a distraction, frankly, then it just seems ridiculous, the idea that you have to do some sort of like Diane Sawyer sit down in order to quell the nerves of GM. I don't think... I don't think they mind the distraction if the guy's awesome. 
I think Michael Vick yeah. is a great example, right? Dog fighting. If Michael Vick was 27% worse, nobody touches him. But he's Michael Vick. He's incredibly talented. And people looked at it. And then the Eagles were like, you know what? We we believe in second chances. And they gave him a second chance. They gave him a second chance because he was one of the most athletic, talented quarterbacks we've had this century. If he wasn't as talented and athletic as he was, guess what? Michael Vick's not playing anymore. And that's how it yeah. would have played out. I uh, Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. This point has been brought up, I believe, on The Ringer and several other places, and I, it, it feels very, very true to me, but I'm curious as to why you think it is, Bill. Like, Colin Kaepernick's in the NBA. This is a non-issue. No one's talking about this. I mean, it might have been a, an issue for a couple of weeks, but it would have gone away completely. He would have been starting or whatever he was as a player, basketball player. Why is that? Why is the NFL so fertile for this controversy to rage and rage and rage? It's something we've talked about a couple of times on podcasts, but the perception of how NBA players would be treated if they were in the NFL and vice versa. And, you know, I was, I I was saying how if Russell Westbrook played football and Cam Newton played basketball, Cam Newton is just loved in a totally different way. And then somebody else said to me, no, no, the good, the good analogy is James Harden and Cam Newton, because they're both these really talented guys who have been awesome and, you know, been MVP candidates and they've had trouble in the playoffs. And, and if James Harden was an NFL player, there would just be like hot take after hot take. Does he take it seriously enough? All this stuff. So I do think for whatever reason, the minds of the average sports fan processes NBA players differently than NFL players. That would be part of it. And the other part is there's a military aspect to the NFL and just like do your job nobody's bigger than the team. Keep your helmet. Like they, and the, the Goodell and those guys have kind of cracked your helmet off. Don't take your helmet off. Don't celebrate. Nobody, nobody's bigger than anyone else. And I do think that plays into it. And the NFL seems to be really, really invested in keeping it that way. Does some of this too have to do with in recent history, the biggest stars in the NBA have been outspoken about this stuff. LeBron James, Carmelo. Yeah. Uh, Chris Paul, yep. Kevin Durant, you know, Tom Brady has not only not been outspoken, he has been sort of ashamed, not ashamed about his dalliances with Donald Trump, uh, Drew Brees. I mean, we could just name like Aaron Rodgers, you know, had some, they have, they have moments, but you would think Rodgers would be a much bigger presence with this. He said, and he's had a moment, right. When somebody said something during the national anthem, a couple of couple, was that a couple of years ago now? But I think when somebody like LeBron sets the tone, yeah. How can then yeah. you be mad? How can then you, what are you going to do? Get rid of LeBron James? You know, Jason, there's just no, there's no way. Jason, don't you think part of it is the mindset of, of the, uh, the owners themselves, the makeup of the owners and also the commissioner, the NBA is like Adam Silver, who's definitely a 21st century commissioner. Half of their yeah. owners are guys that came from, you know, newer money, tech industry, hustled, made it themselves. The NFL is like, other than Shad Khan on the, on on Jacksonville, it's 31 old rich guys. It really is. White guys. Absolutely. Yeah. We're yeah. old rich I mean, white guys. And, and it's, you know, NFL football is culturally about control, right? Controlling the team, controlling the play, controlling the message. And I going back to your point about individuality and sort of, you know, these personalities being allowed to flourish in the NBA and not in the NFL, I can tell you, like, I had a conversation not long ago with a quote-unquote league source who was saying, like, there's a little bit of frustration in the NFL about the idea of the NBA just commanding all the attention for these individual personalities. I mean, we're in this great moment for the NBA with all these sort of like, you know, really interesting individual people and then some great teams on top of it. The NFL, you got Tom Brady and you got some sort of, you know, you got a handful of other quarterbacks. And then 
Odell Beckham, but Odell Beckham, I can tell you, in New York is getting all sorts of grief all the time, even though anybody under 21 kind of adores him. Yeah. Um, they, they, they're not terribly uh, uh, comfortable um, at the idea of people breaking out and being individual stars. And, and, and that's a real issue for them, I think, going forward, because you're not going to be able to strictly sell sports as an athletic product. It has to be personality driven. I just think that that's the way everything is going in entertainment. And so if it's just like, oh, watch the football, and especially if the football is sort of bad, which a lot of NFL football was last year, that's going to be an issue. Hold this thought. Want to talk quickly about Simply Safe. Summer winding down, life's going back to normal. Maybe you're coming back from vacation. The kids are going back to school. Is that, Brian, your kid pre-K yet? Uh, yeah. A little pre-K? Pre-K this year. Yeah, a little pre-K. How about you, Jason? <laughs> yeah, pre-K, man. Double pre-K. up this year. Great times. Great times. You show up at the end of the school year, and they, all the kids are lined up. They sing some song. None of them know all the words. <laughs> it's really emotional. I miss it. Now is the perfect time to protect your home with Simply Safe Home Security. Rest easy knowing your home and family are protected with a fully equipped home security system. We're in the final days of Simply Safe Home Security's huge summer sale, their biggest ever. $100 off the special summer package, which offers award-winning full home protection with 24-7 alarm monitoring and police dispatch. Important to get the police involved if something's happening in your house. Yes. No wires, no landline. A burger can't disarm it. Burglar can't disarm it by a snipping wire. Best of all, you get all this protection without having to sign a long-term contract. No lock-ins, no hidden fees, nothing to hold you back. The sale ends September 3rd. It's coming up. Go now. Get $100 off the special summer package. Visit simplysafe.com slash BS. Simplysafe with two eyes. $100 off. Simplysafe.com slash BS. All right. The irony of the individuality with the NBA and the NFL is that last decade – this was the all-time sore spot for everyone who ran the NBA and a lot of the owners, too. They did not understand. And it was a perception that came out of the 80s and the 90s, and especially the lockout, which was so damaging for the NBA, where people were so critical of of the players and the way they acted, the way they acted off the court, all this stuff. And you talk about 07, 08, 09, when the NBA really started to turn around with the personalities and um, Kobe had had his reinvention tour. LeBron and his generation are coming up, and the guys were so much better at dealing with the media. And the NFL is just running amok and having all this stuff happen off the off the field. And the people running the NBA are like, "What the hell? Why are we considered the league of the thugs and the bad guys? Look over there. Look at the NFL." And now, ten years later, that is flipped. And now the NBA can do no wrong, and the NFL is just like an ongoing police blotter. Why do you think that changed, Brian? It's a really good question. I think um, I think it's probably because I think the commissioner, as you said, becomes the sort of lightning rod. You know, but by the way, Adam Silver will have his moment. You know, it's, oh, he will. It's, months, it's gone too well years, for five if not years. months away. I mean, yeah. I, I'm waiting for the turn. Yeah. I can't wait for the turn because I'm going to go back and I have the clip file. You know, of all the this is the the, the biggest, most you know, the righteous man in 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 the sports. You yeah. know, and I'm just going to pull all those out. You know, I'm ready. Come, come on, let's turn. Because no commissioner gets. Even Roselle got. You know, he he had some moments. Right. It's like nobody goes the whole way. He's had the best five year run of of good. PR, I think anybody's had. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, he's, he's sort of, he has to, he should write Goodell a thank you note every day. 
because this made his job so much easier. Yeah. Because whatever he does, whether it's on a tricky issue like domestic violence, whether it's on all this stuff, he just Goodell is going to do a worse job. Yeah. So it, it's it's a layup. I, I think that's I, that's got to be a lot of it, right? Yeah, and I would I think obviously the football players, there's more of them. You're talking about probably four and a half to five times as many NBA players. And there's just been more incidents that I think people can point to and the league's handled stuff badly. But I do think the NBA has caught this wave for whatever reason. I don't know the full explanation of it. The guys that are coming into the league, they're almost like, I I hate to use the word trained, but they're just well trained with how they handle the media. How savvy. They handle, they're savvy to how they handle the pu- their public persona. Think about that. They're on Twitter. They're on Instagram. They're on Facebook. They can communicate directly to anybody. This should be going way more wrong than it is. <laughs> these, if I was 21 and I had access to all this stuff, I would have been a disaster. Yeah. Jason, why yeah. are these guys so much better than the previous generation? I think because they know they have the power. I mean, LeBron knows that he is the most powerful person in the NBA. If it doesn't work out for him in one location, he can go to another location. If he doesn't work out in the NBA, he can start his own league. If he doesn't work out in basketball, he can start a media empire. He's an empowered person and is recognized. It's sort of been a pleasure to watch, frankly, in the last half decade, especially, you know, sort of the growth of his social conscious and the fearlessness with which he puts himself out there. I think of in the NFL, guys are incredibly wary of saying anything that could be turned into some sort of controversy, but LeBron has not shied away from it in the slightest. And also, I do think that there's a little bit of a media component to this. Yeah. I do feel like, you know, in addition to the fact that, you know, ownership is more conservative, the league ethos is more conservative, I do feel the media in the NFL is a little bit more conservative, too. I mean, not necessarily the case of Kaepernick or something like that, but you see it in something like the Ezekiel Elliott story, where, like, when I see that stuff talked about, you know, domestic violence talked about on sports radio, I mean, it's like watching somebody juggle chainsaws. They're not <laughs> equipped with the, you know, understanding of either, you know, the 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 incredible, um, you know, severity of the accusations and charges, but also the legal system in order to have any sort of, like, you know, cogent conversation about it. Yeah. By the way, when we, I love it when we talk about the power of athletes, let, let's, let's see how this manifests itself with the next CBA negotiation. You know, we're already on the D Smith tour again. Oh, D Smith's going to do it. You know, he's yeah. going to, he's going to win it this time. They're not going to let old Goodell get away with it. I just, I, I'm in the, and I'm a pro labor guy, but I'm in the, let's see this actually happen before we get really excited about how powerful these guys, I mean, are they going to win a labor negotiation? Finally, they, they did a bad job at the last CBI. I had him on my HBO show and it was me, him and Gladwell. And we, we'd talk for 45 minutes because he was filibustering on every question. I like him. He's a nice guy. I think he's smart, but it's, he was definitely a politician with the, with some of his said answers. They did not do a good job at the last CBA. There were a lot of holes in it. Um, they gave Goodell way too much power. The, um, the, the, you look at some of the skill positions, you know, like let's, t- let's take Le'Veon Bell, for example, he should be holding out that running back position. You're out of the league when you're 31, these NBA guys, they know they're going to have a 16, 17, 18 year career. If they're great, LeBron can sign these one and two year deals because he knows he's going to play till he's 40. He's controlling his own destiny. No football player can do that. Maybe Brady, maybe yeah. Rogers, the quarterbacks, Kirk but he- Cousins. Yeah, I guess Kirk Cousins by default because he's got a dumb owner who keeps signing into these one-year deals. But you know, but even Brady has to take less on the salary yeah. cap to make the team better. So does Rodgers. And 
Um, when you think about the billions and billions and billions they're making, but then also streaming money coming at the NBA, yeah. they had some article about the NBA, like uh, basically Chinese league pass. Do you guys read that article? <laughs> no. So that, you know, league pass in China, I forget the number and I don't want to, I don't want to say the wrong number, but I, it was something like 20 million per team or something. It, it was up. Just as free money from China because all these people are getting the league pass. They split up. I think it was like a $500 million deal. And uh, and they're just making money hands over fist. And even though this current CBA has been really good for the NBA, all these players are noticing all these stories. They're seeing where all the digital money is going. And, and with the NFL, I don't, I don't think it's going to translate the same way. It feels like the players are becoming less and less powerful, you know? Yeah. But that runs in, in 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 contra to everything we're saying here. I know they have their own voice on Twitter. They're bigger than ever. They can say what they want. LeBron can say what he wants without uh, fear, right? And yet, you know, when is the W going to come at the bargaining table? Well, you could argue it already oh, yeah. came because, like, if you're LeBron James, you're making thirty million dollars a year, but then you're also making forty to fifty off the court. Yeah, but, and but what about on the court? But just make both on the court and off the court, all the money. Yeah, As somebody said about Steph the other day, he's worth $50 million. Maybe. Yeah. I think I they mean, make a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but it was I, a bad I, deal. I mean, the listen, last deal was a bad deal for the players. That's not That's not an argument, right? I think, it was, think, I think they, they could have made more. Like a deal for, you don't think that they look at like Neymar and say like, hey, wait a second. You know, obviously, European soccer model... You know, you have competing leagues. You know, you have NBA versus NBA versus NBA fighting over talent. But you don't think that they look at a superstar like that and say, like, hey, wait a second, I'm globally important. I'm as big as Neymar. You know, maybe, maybe not true. But you don't think that they look at those numbers and say, like, we're vastly underpaid in terms of our value to the league and to the franchise. I know, but did you see what that Neymar deal was? I mean, most of that was the transfer fee. I don't think he gets that. Doesn't he just get... No, no, I know he doesn't get the 220, right. He gets yeah. like, his salary is probably right around what LeBron makes. I think, you know, they use the NBA as the tool to then go make more money elsewhere. You know, LeBron's has a chance to be the first billion dollar athlete while he's still playing if he plays some of his business stuff right. Um, yeah. KD's over there in Silicon Valley, like just jumping in on all these different things. Like they're using the NBA as a platform to try to achieve okay. all these other things. It doesn't seem like there's that many NFL players. They're not around long enough. LeBron's in year 15. Yeah. There's no NFL player that plays 15 years unless they're a quarterback at this point or some grizzled defensive sure. end. So I think like it seems like the shelf life of some of the uh the contracts is is or the the careers, I would say is a bigger obstacle. Wait, we have some more stuff we got to talk about. I I have a perfect pivot. Pivot if we want to pivot. All Why right, I'm going to pivot here because you're talking about, you know, the, the measuring your salary against the platform. Can we talk about the idea because it comes up in sports media a fair amount. The idea of working for free or working for peanuts. Uh, there was this conversation about SB Nation recently and whether or whether or not they were paying people fair value for their work and yep. you know, this is a constant conversation on the web. SB Nation is not alone in this regard in terms of, you know, People starting out for very little or no money, with the you know the sales pitch being like, look, we're going to give you an audience, we're going to give you a platform, we're going to make it look nice, and anyone can look at it. And a lot of people are taking internet sites up on that offer. But at what point does it stop being a business model and be something else, i.e., exploitative? 
And I hear all the time, you know, I, I'm not a big fan at all of the idea of working for free, but then I, people I respect and, you know, like a great deal say, look, it allowed me to get in the door. It allowed me to get my voice out there in a way that I never would have been able to do on my own. And so it was worth it to me. I just, you know, I'm skeptical. What do you think, Brian? Couple of thoughts. One is my, I think my first experience with this personally was 10, 15 years ago when the college football message board thing was really coming about and you paid $10 a month and there were a couple of journalists who gave you the inside dope, yeah. University of Texas in my case. But it became clear over the years that the value to the site wasn't the news, which would get on Twitter in five seconds anyway, but the people that were posting for free on the college message board. Yeah. The, the unpaid labor, as it were, giving you barbecue recommendations and letting you know in Texas when Whataburger brought the spicy ketchup back, you know, that kind of important information. I think that was it, you know, and, I, and there's a little bit of a parallel with the with the SB Nation thing. I, I just, you know, I think the the thing that was most shocking to me about that article, which was on Deadspin, we should say, um, was the SB Nation people saying, oh, no, everybody here is paid. <laughs> and it was actually just not the case. Yeah. You know, everybody was not paid. And, and it was, there was no way you could think that everybody was paid. And, you know, it's not so it's not it's not a thing to say, look, here is our business model. We you know, we're going to pay a couple of people. We're going to pay certain people. Uh, we're going to give a very tiny, barely a stipend to other people. And then other people are just going to write for free. It was, oh, no, everybody's paid. Well, everybody's not paid. So I think the first thing you have to do if you want to come to grips with one of these models is actually say what the model is. Right. Well, I just look at like from my own standpoint, 1997, I'd, I'd been out of the newspaper business for almost a year. And there's this digital city Boston site that has a movie guy. I'm trying to be their sports guy. I would have done anything to get read by anyone. And I think they paid me $50 a week for the first three months. And I just busted my ass and eventually I got to $200 a week. And then um, I was still bartending on inside for a, a year plus. And I can't remember exactly when I got to the point where they were paying me like five fifty or 600 a week, but it was probably like about 15, 18 months in, no benefits. Um, and I did that site for four years, just trying to get seen and it sucks and it, it becomes discouraging after a while. But on the other hand, there's no other way I could have created a break. So I look at somebody like, you know, look at Kevin O'Connor, one of our young basketball writers. He was writing for, I think Celtics blog when we saw him and I don't know what he was making for them. He was probably making a little, but not a lot, but we never would have seen him if he was 300,000 is the starting salary. <laughs> <laughs> but we... We wouldn't have seen him if he wasn't on that site. So it's a catch-22 where you can't get seen unless you're writing. And it can be SB Nation. It could be fan-sided. It could be all these different places. It could be Deadspin. It could be wherever. But you you have to get seen somehow. How are you going to get seen? Nobody's just going to say you're hired. Um, I think that happens pretty rarely where you're coming out of journalism school. You just get a job in a newspaper. That seems less and less conventional these days. So I, how I do look you feel at it, about it, Bill? Well, I was just going to say I look at it. Now that you're on the other side of it. Well, I, now I, that you're on the side of hiring. Obviously, the motto we had at Grantland and the motto we have here is that we we pay people who write for us, and um, you know we have we I think we have over seventy people. We probably have forty five to fifty on the writing side, and they all you know they make money. Yeah. Um, the sports reporters is gratis. We should, sports, we yeah, JSK, yeah. not getting paid for this podcast. Um, I think, uh, 
I don't know what I would do if I was a 23 year old writer. And I think a lot of it has changed from where it was 20 years ago because there's more people trying to do this now. And yeah, my, it's funny. People would ask, well, if you ask me, what's my advice? I'm a 23 year old. I want to write about basketball someday. What should I, what should I do? I think my advice would be the same as your guys advice, right? Go out and write and try to come up with original content and try to get seen by the right people and do whatever it takes to get there. All right. So what does do whatever it takes mean? Well, how do you get seen? Well, you probably get seen by going on some of these sites and trying to get seen. And that's the part that is both fair and unfair, I think, because you have a platform to get seen, but on the other hand, you're providing labor to somebody who's basically turning a business into it. So I don't know. I don't know what the right and the wrong answer is. You seem, now Brian seems sad. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be happy in this day of uh, pivoting to video and uh, writing for but free. That, and but that's a whole different conversation. No, but I, I think there's two different ways. There's, there's a way to see it through the eyes of the young journalists. I'll do anything to, to get some eyeballs on me. It's love of the game. It's, I'm trying to make yeah. a career, but then they're seeing it through the giant media entity that is making money in perpetuity off people working for it for free. I just think that's two yeah. different sort of ways to look at well, it. Yeah, if you it have seems a, less romantic when you, when you look at it through the second lens. You, if you have a yeah. site, if you have a site that uh, has been on someplace for seven years and you're still not making money from it at that point, you, you, you know, it's, it becomes harder to justify and you probably become a lot more bitter about it. Um, so I, I don't know. And, and some of this has to come down to how long do you do something before you give up? You know, I talked about this. One of the last podcasts I did for ESPN on my old podcast, it was ESPN.com's 20 year anniversary. And I did a whole podcast about kind of how I got there. And there were two different points when I almost gave up, you know, 1996 after I left the Herald. And then in 2000, year three of my site, my site was good. I had an audience, but I couldn't break through. I couldn't make that get over the hump. And I remember going out to dinner near the end of that summer with 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 uh, my future wife and my mom and my stepdad. And I was like, I think I'm going to give up. I think I'm going to, maybe I'll go into commercial real estate, you know? And I think a lot of writers have hit that point where you just go, "Yeah, is this yeah. worth it? Is this going to happen? And what's interesting is- yeah. The Defiant Ones, which I thought was incredible, has a similar couple spots about Iovine and Dr. Dre in there, where Dr. Dre is like, I have the I have the chronic, it's this great album, nobody wants it. Should I give up? Should I quit? Is it, was this album just not good? And then he finds Jimmy Iovine. And I think, you know, I, I can't imagine how many people we see it out here in LA with actors, people who move out here, all of a sudden they're 35, they think they're gonna be John Hamm. It's like John Hamm yep. took a while to become John Hamm. It's still going to happen right. for me. And then they're 38. They're taking another job. So I don't think this yeah. is a situation unique to writing, but it's it sucks. And sometimes I'm sure there's people that have given up that shouldn't have. I think Brian's right on the, you know, from the writer angle, the hustle part of it, I think, has always been part of the business. And no matter how far back you go, there are people who are there. They started as copy boys or people who are making Xeroxes and stuff. That's always been part of the culture of journalism or really any business. I think that where the dynamic has changed with, you know, low paid labor or no paid labor is, you know, it was one thing if you were doing it for like your, you know, 
small town, country, you know, weekly newspaper or some small daily that was barely turning a profit. It's another thing when you're an apparatus of this like big dot com machine where like venture capital in the millions, tens of millions is pouring into these things and they're still at the bottom of it, all this unpaid labor. I, that distresses me. And it actually makes me root for things like, you know, here's another pivot, guys, but like, you know, the athletic and what they're doing, uh, you know, which is a I don't know if it's a new model or just, frankly, you know, sort of old-time newspapering in the respect that, look, it's a subscription model. They're going to pay people wages. They're going to be reporters who have, you know, sources, and they're going to travel, and they're going to do this stuff, and we're going to ask them out, you know, for a certain I don't know how it works. It hasn't sort of been spelled out to me in a way that I can totally comprehend it, but it's hard not to root for it a little bit because they seem to be doing it right. Uh, I have a thought on that. Quick break to talk about Bowen Branch. Bowen Branch, you like sheets, Brian? Yes, I do like sheets. Do you like having good sheets? Tate doesn't care. Every time I do, I do bow and branch. Tate it feels awkward. I think I'm old enough to sheets. know the difference now. Yeah, well, I think all of us remember being in college with bad sheets. Guess what? Great sleep starts with the right sheets. They're more affordable than you think with bow and branch. They make the most comfortable sheets you'll ever sleep on. Fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, wake up ready to kick some ass. Each sheet is crafted from 100% organic cotton. Feel incredible. Look amazing. And since Bowen Branch sells exclusively online, there's no expensive retail markup, half the price, twice the quality. Anyone who sleeps on Bowen Branch sheets loves them. That's why they have thousands of five-star reviews. Go to Bowen Branch today, bowenbranch.com. You'll get $50 off your first set of sheets, plus free shipping when you use the promo code BS. Try them for 30 nights, and if you're not impressed, return them for a full refund. That's $50 off, plus free shipping. Right now at b o l l and branch. dot com. Uh, we have a uh, we we did uh, Vox Media built our new website, and we're, I'm going to have Jim Bankoff come on, who runs Vox Media, um, probably in the next few weeks, and we'll talk about all this stuff because I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating topic, and I know he has some thoughts on it too. The pivot to video part of this whole thing, which we have not talked about on the Sports Reporters, but has become this little crutch for basically people who have decided that their writing part of their website didn't work. So they say pivot to video. I don't, I think it's, it's a fancy way of saying our, our old objective didn't work. So now we're trying this and there's been four or five, what, five, five examples maybe at least of this. Yeah. But on the other hand, we haven't seen any any site that was having like dramatic success on the writing side just just kick it to the curb and pivot to video. So it does seem like it's all part of the same issue. And the issue is it's really hard to make a website. It's hard to make a website yeah. that has the right level of quality and the right balance of stuff. And we found this out the last you know year and a half uh, with our current endeavor. It's just hard and. You know, they they reached a point on the internet where there was an incredible amount of content and you knew there was going to be some sort of supply and demand issue. The pivot to video part, there's a soullessness to it that I think really bothers people. How do you feel about it, Brian? It's the euphemism. Yeah. I mean, it's pivot to video. Not not you're fired. (laughs) You're laid off. (laughs) You've been pivoted out of a job. Yeah. We saw this with the New York Times the other day when they... You know, we're in the process and still are, I guess, of dumping their copy editors. They said, well, everyone's invited to reapply for their old job. <laughs> that also means you're laid off. <laughs> it's the right. same. That's the same thing. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's the soullessness of it. And by the way, I think it's this is the oldest journalism thing, which is the writers hate the TV people. And I said, I'm, I'm talking to two, two occasional TV people here, yeah. by the way, I'm the, the lowly, I hated myself. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the lowly print scribe right here. But in the old days, when, when us middle-aged white guys were growing up, the local sports paper guy said, oh, that idiot on the local news, he doesn't know anything about sports. Right. The talking yeah. head with a hairpiece. And yeah. I, that guy doesn't know anything. And that is still the thing. And I, maybe I feel like a print snob now, but when I see somebody write a really good piece, I say, I wish I'd written that or I wish I could have written that story. Yeah. Yeah. Or I, I wish I had thought of that. Story. Yeah. When, when I see a colleague or a peer uh, get on TV, I say, I wish I had his job. I don't say, I wish I did what he did on TV. I said, I wish I had the job, the money, the, the visibility. And that's an important difference, I think. And I think that's kind of what informs some of this too. Well, it seems like a lot of yeah. people that go on TV, I mean, this is, this is even a slightly different topic than pivot to video, but I think we're in the current age of, there are people who want to be on TV. Stephen A. is born to be on TV. I know he started as a writer, but he loves it. He's he can do three minute monologues. Give me the ball. Give he, me the ball. I want to. I want this. Yeah. He goes first take for two hours. Does his radio show? Goes on Sports Center. There'll be an NBA game. He'll come on after. Like the dude loves it. Then you see other people that, uh, especially ESPN, you've seen that more and more people that are writers that seem like they're on TV because you can make more money on TV, but it's not their yeah. first love. And yeah. it's, they're not people that, you know, love the red light of it. I think Jason and I are probably leaning a little more to that camp. I love being on the NBA show um, because I felt like e- even though the actual experience was pretty miserable, I love the, the idea of the game, this great game ends and the first people who are going to talk about it right after the game, you could be one of those four people. That's why I wanted to do the show for those two years. Cause it was awesome. Then doing an actual TV show is a lot harder. And then you realize like, eh, this yeah. is for certain people. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. but there is something cool about the immediate reaction. Jason was in the grind where he's doing a show every single day. And that's yeah. when it becomes like, Oh man, what am I doing? And yeah. I'm sure you felt that for way, right? Hundreds of hundreds of viewers. But even if you had had a ton of viewers, like the grind of doing that show and having to come up with takes and doing that, did you like that or did you not like it? I mean, there were moments I liked it more than others. I mean, what I found very quickly was that there's not a lot of correspondence between being, you know, a writer and being on television or certainly not good at television. And there are people who are incredibly gifted on television who you wouldn't want to be writers and vice versa. I just think that the thing about the pivoting to video, which makes me wary, is that there's just a very tactile reason for this happening, right? It's about embedding advertising, available advertising into these videos. It's as really as simple as that. And what it finds been pretty preposterous about a lot of the explanations for this is that it's being like audience demanded. Uh, I don't know about you guys, and maybe this is, speaks again to our middle-aged whiteness, but like, I'm not like getting excited about watching videos on Facebook and social media and so forth. You know, I'd much rather sit and read a you know 1,200-word article than I would watch a even a 90-second video. Um, and it does make me think, you know, there, there's, there are places that have done terrific jobs with it, you know, have done, you know, figured out, cracked some kind of code in terms of how to do instant delivery video, but it does make me wonder sometimes, like, is the destination, is is is, is where we're going uh, 
in writing as a journalism tribe? Are we is our des- destination all just to be crappy like local news stations? Is that what it's all going to come <laughs> down to? Because the quality control is all over the place. Well, there's I think there's more and more creativity coming into video. It's certainly something that we've been having fun, like trying to figure out good ways to do this and reach people right away and all the different layers to that. It seems like we're in the early embryonic stages of that. I think part of the problem right now, though, is that the old internet model with the way advertising on websites and stuff like that, it wasn't a good model. And I think it took a lot of, it took some, some, well, most companies a long time to realize that. And once they realized that the model shifted on the people that were making content and they were like, Oh no, it was great before it was great before it wasn't a great model. And now we're seeing like whatever this new model that's emerging, it seems a little video heavy right now. The stuff always moves in trends that are almost too severe. So now it's like video, video, video. It's like, well, there's a lot of ways you can integrate sponsors and there's branded content and there's podcasts. Um, There's video ads at the beginning and the end of stuff. There's, there's ways you can do like we we're doing like theme weeks, like we did the South week and get a sponsor for that. Like that you can get more creative I think the old way of here's a banner for your Peter King column. You get right. a banner on top of it, and here's the price. Right. That model's right. just going away, and that and that, and it's right. not coming back. And I think part right. of this is too we we've seen we haven't seen great as much great web video yet that us print, that us print snobs go oh I want to do that. I mean I think if ten years ago we said oh we're all going to pivot to podcasting. All the print people would have gone, oh my God, it's the end of what it's is the end this? of words. Yeah. But then there was Serial and there was Mark Marin and there was the sports reporters, perhaps most importantly. <laughs> and all of a sudden everybody's like, Ooh, where's my podcast? And, yeah. and if I don't have yeah. a podcast, I don't exist in this media world. And podcasting is okay, right? Video mm, You're yeah, the but- Brian, you're the only person who said <laughs> didn't say where's my podcast. <laughs> right. you, fact, you, you said Brian, where's I was your like, podcast? Brian, yeah. Here's your podcast. And Brian's like, I don't want it. But uh <laughs> But yeah, I do think there's more opportunities for talent, which can also be a bad thing. Um, yeah. You're a writer in your late hey, 20s and you can you have four different ways to go. Yeah, what's up, Jason? Not to turn this into a, a Recode conference, but what's your take on subscription-based websites and whether or not they can work? You know, going completely behind a paywall and making your business sub-based. You must have thought about it. I think it works if if you're the New Yorker or Washington Post or the New York Times and you have an incredible amount of equity with with uh your audience and the model that I think is really good that is going to work and succeed long term is the model where here's some of our stuff and you could read yeah. 10 of our pieces a month or 12 but right. if you want if you want the whole shebang here's the subscription thing that model's working. I think it's very hard to start from scratch with the subscription model. We looked at that. I'm, I'm not saying it wouldn't work, but the problem is you're walling off the new people that can come in, that, the people that um, would potentially want to experience it or like, oh, I want to get in on this. When right. you're creating a moat around your content from the get-go, I think Glenn Beck, right. found, Glenn Beck found this out way back when. Like Glenn Beck did his own site, right? Started out, had X amount of people, probably, I think it was close to a million. I can't remember the numbers. And then uh, the problem is 
he started with that base, but you can't grow it because nobody can read your stuff. So then it just right. starts going down. So I think for the athletic, I think the key will be um, making sure people can read some of the stuff to suck them in. I think if they just put right. a motor on it, I think it's, you know, it's just riskier. I don't, I don't know if it'll work or not work. I'm, I'm rooting for those guys. I'm fascinated to see how it works, but yeah, me too. You want to, I think you want to, uh, you want, you want people to at least read a couple of your best things. So I'm sure they'll figure out the balance. We well, have what about the hyperlocal angle? There's the guy, I guess, Greg Bedard, I think, in New England, who's doing it with, you know, New England's kind of a, you know, obviously a very fertile sports net, uh, world right now and, you know, doing obsessive Patriots coverage. And I know that he's basing that model off of Brian. Can you tell me, remind me who the guy in Pittsburgh is who did this a couple of years back now and has this pretty thriving operation, a guy who was at. I don't remember his name either. That. I know you're talking about yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Um, but you know, really inspiring case of someone from the ground up building something a submodel that that worked, and uh, and the, and the idea of being just super obsessive, hyper local. And if you've got to got to have every last thing about every practice rep that happened at Patriots practice, then this is your place, and just go for the total junkie. Yeah, I was gonna say if I if I had to bet, and I hope they all work, but if I had to bet, I would bet on local, and then even within a city, one team. Right. Like we've seen the athletic yeah. Bay area. They're just like, we're going to, we're going to hire every warriors writer. Yeah. <laughs> every warriors writer is going to be yeah. here. So literally if you, if it's not Haynes on ESPN, like you have to come here for warriors news. And and that's really yeah. smart because then if you kind of wall off as much as you can, you kind of wall off a team. I, I think that's a good idea. Here's my fear. ESPN tried this. They had ESPN, Boston, ESPN, Dallas, yep. ESPN, LA, ESPN, New York, was there one other one? That's all I remember. You would think like so. Did they, you say they, Dallas? They had Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. They definitely had those four, yeah. and they put money behind it, and they tried to attach it to the ESPN radio stations, and they hired good people and all this stuff, and they abandoned it. And I don't know whether they abandoned it because it was managed poorly, because the audience wasn't there. I know, like with ESPN Boston, part of it was it was really hard for them to compete with just the DNA of the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald and just generations of people that are just used to buying those two papers. And um, maybe that's flipped now in the middle of this decade where people are more likely to pay to put their credit down for stuff where people are more used to getting stuff in unconventional ways. But I know that that ESPN model, cause I was there for that. It didn't work as well um, back then, but I also think it was mismanaged too. And I think part of the problem with those sites is they didn't, a lot of them didn't have like the one draw. Like ESPN Dallas, you must have gone there, Brian. Sure. You know, it didn't feel organically Dallas. Right. That it was part like of the problem. ESPN's, it was like an ESPN write, zone. Really good writers, really good reporters, but it didn't, it somehow it felt like a, a, a little part of a larger Borg entity rather than a Dallas thing. Right. And I think weirdly that I didn't like that, you know? Yeah. It, it was a little like how ESPN the zone never... <laughs> ESPN zone. What was it called? ESPN, ESPN zone? zone. Yeah. They always felt like an ESPN zone. It never felt like they belonged to whatever city they was in. Mm -hmm. They were in, and that's what killed them. Uh, quickly, let's talk about proper cloth. Every guy knows it's hard to find a dress shirt that fits. Maybe the collar's too tight. The sleeves are too long. The shirt's too loose. I have some good news. Ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier thanks to proper cloth. Create a custom shirt size in seconds by just answering ten easy questions. No measuring required. Choose from over twenty collar styles, ten cuff styles, and five hundred fabric styles. From classic to business to completely customize your shirt and get the style that you want. All high quality with the absolute best quality and craftsmanship starting at just $80. Proper cloth guarantees a perfect fit 
if your if your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they would remake it for free. How many shirts do you guys have that fit properly? I'm at like twenty percent. My over under is like two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Look your best. Go to propercloth.com slash BS. Enter gift code BS to save $20 on your first shirt. Again, propercloth.com slash BS. Gift code BS. We want to talk about... Can we? Can I pivot? Can we pivot? Speaking of Boston, speaking of local to Yawkey Way. Yeah, let's say... I, I, want, you, I want to hear Bill one. Simmons on Yawkey Way. <laughs> it, was, it was a big topic this week in my fam. Plus, my, my son was there for, for Fenway and the whole thing. So... Obviously, they had to do this. I agree with it. I I love the idea of calling it Ortiz Way. I think it's great. I think it symbolizes. You don't want Big Pappy Way? No, I'd call it David Ortiz Way and just call it Ortiz Way. Big Pappy Way. I don't even. What is it? Sounds like a <laughs> like a chocolate bar or something. Um, the timing of it was atrocious. It 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 opened the door up for them to seem like they're pandering or reacting. What I didn't like about this. I think again, I think they should do it. I thought it was long overdue and, and the Yawkey, even though he did so much good stuff with the Jimmy Fund and everything, the the history of the Red Sox and, and the racial history of the team is just part of the DNA of the team in a bad way. And if I'm a black Red Sox fan going to a Red Sox game and it's like, Oh, I'm gonna walk down Yawkey Way, the guy who wouldn't sign Jackie Robinson and and told them not to sign Willie Mays and we didn't have a black player until nineteen fifty nine. It's like I wouldn't feel good about that. Here's my question. Ortiz was retiring last year. They they always said the big obstacle with Yawkey Way was Mayor Menino. And they the Red Sox claim and I've met a lot of the Red Sox guys. Like I really like Sam Kennedy. He said they've been talking about this for ten years. And that Mayor Menino, it just they couldn't get it done. And all right, well, Mayor Menino left two years ago. Ortiz was retiring last year. Isn't that the perfect time if you're gonna, you know, kind of quietly move away from Yaki and and start start fresh and get rid of it and name it after Ortiz? Why didn't you do it last year? Why are you doing it now? Now they're opening that. Now they're in this debate that they put themselves in and they're going to be accused of pandering and overreacting on this stuff. And meanwhile, the reasons to do this were genuine and real and good. And they should have done it a year ago. What do you think, Brian? I think with a lot of national, with national emergencies, create opportunities to do what you wanted to do already and should have done already. Right. I mean, people are pointing out that all these Confederate monuments that we could have taken down any time over the last hundred <laughs> years are coming down because of what Donald Trump said. Yeah. In two different occasions over the last week. And, you know, it could be read as pandering or it could be read as here's something we wanted to do and need to do already. It is now to the level of the presidency of the United States, more than a local Boston debate. And this is the time to do it. And we're going to do it. And we're not going to wait around. Even Henry said in his email that he sent to the Herald, you know, when you have leadership like this in the White House, it is this is no longer tenable to, to wait on anymore. It's time to move. What do you think, Jason? Well, and then you add the dynamic that John Henry owns a newspaper in Boston, which is kind of fascinating as well. I mean, you can also dictate public debate a little bit, not to say that he has some sort of bat phone to the Globe newsroom, but that's part of this, too. Um, I, you know, quite honestly, I understand what you're saying about it. Does the optics are a little weird because it's coming right after Charlottesville, but I just feel like, you know, not to be cynical about it, but nothing lasts anymore. You know, we're on to the next in terms of controversies, and I don't think this is going to be some sort of thing that's going to stick in a negative way to the Red Sox if they make this change. I think that most people are in general agreement that this name's got to go, Yaki's got to go. Uh, David Ortiz is a 
ideal replacement for many, many different reasons. I think people are going to be okay with it. And the fact that it had some sort of, you know, it was in the vapor trail of Charlottesville going to be forgotten very quickly. I hope you're right. I wish they'd done this last year, but uh, I hope you're right. I just know that growing up, you know, outside of Boston, and there's this great book by Al Hirschberg, I think was his name. It was called What's Wrong with the Red Sox? And it was like basically the history of the Red Sox up to that point. And to find out as a little kid that your team could have signed Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays, but didn't because you had a racist owner, you know, that I was six years yeah. old. I'm like, what? We wouldn't sign. He had Willie Mays. We couldn't get him. And that, it felt like it was part of the DNA. And in a weird way, like karmically, who knows how much that explains the 86 years, but I'm, I'm sure from a karma standpoint, not great. And when I was growing up, the team was always really white and just did not have a lot of black players. And, um, it, 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 it started a shift in the nineties. Then it really shifted with the Ortiz teams and all that stuff. And then it now it is where it is now, but, um, getting rid of Yaki way is a good thing. I know we do this yeah. with every single news event, but if I went to 10 year old Bill Simmons and, or let's say 20 year old Bill Simmons and said, Someday, President Donald Trump will lead to the renaming of Yawkey Way. <laughs> what kind of odds would you have given me for that uh, statement? You know what's interesting about the Yawkey Way thing? I mean, maybe it's just me, but I never really called it Yawkey Way. You just go like, yeah, let's meet outside Fenway. <laughs> it wasn't like Yawkey. Yeah. It, it's like if, the, right. if it was called Yawkey Park, this would be such a bigger ooh, deal. And I'm sure it would have I, already been gone. But Yawkey Way, it's I, like, I, I don't know. I agree. I always say, you know, Lansdowne Street to me is always the more known street. You know, it's the street behind the Green Monster where all the nightclubs are and stuff. Yawkey right. Way, yeah, I guess, yeah. And 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 uh, the thing that would have really shocked ten-year-old Bill Simmons was the fact that Fenway Park was still an operational ballpark. I mean, that's the thing that I can't <laughs> believe is actually Fenway still exists. I want um, you to I know that sure it, it was a goner. It would have shocked twenty-year-old Bill Simmons and thirty-year-old Bill Simmons <laughs> equally. I, from my old website that we talked about earlier, I remember writing a big piece about how we had to dump Fenway. I mean, the new owners yeah. came in and really fixed it and made it better in a lot of ways. But there's still ten thousand terrible seats, and half the seats face center field, and it just seemed logical. Like, all right, if the thing we like about Fenway Park is the intimacy in the wall. You can just build another park that looks exactly like it. Now they yeah. figured out how to modernize it. And now you see what happened with new Yankee stadium, which all the Yankee fans hate. It's like, God, thank God. Nobody listened to us. Nobody listened to the get rid of Fenway park crowd because well, places in museum. 100%. I mean, a million years ago, one of my first jobs, I worked at the Boston Phoenix, which is right next door or was right next door. Cause it doesn't exist anymore, but the Boston Phoenix was right next door to Fenway park. Yep. Uh, and on Brookline Avenue and, and, this was when the debates were raging about replacing Fenway Park. The new ownership had, group hadn't come in, and there was a debate over, okay, we're going to put the new park in South Boston, or we're going to put it in Four Point Channel. And then there were the safe Fenway Park people who were universally regarded as the crazies. Like, these people were completely off their rocker. There was no way they were going to save Fenway Park. That was just a completely stupid and romantic notion. And yet here we are, you know, 25 years later. Yeah, they were like the 9-11 truthers of the Boston sports scene in the late 90s. And when and when the new owners – see, what we didn't realize was we had horrible owners. Like we had Tom Yaki, yeah. 
And then, who, by the way, was trying to get a new stadium built in the mid-60s, and there was going to be a dome with yeah. the Patriots. There's a great Sports Illustrated article about him in 1965 that lays out, like, we know we need a new stadium. It's a little, little throws out a little racism in there at one point. But, uh, but you know, by the time it hit the late 90s, the the Red Sox fans were just like, the guy who just had the worst girlfriends of all time, who had no idea that real love existed. <laughs> and these new owners came in and they were like, Hey, we're going to fix up Fenway. And we're like, no, you're, yeah. we don't trust these guys. I don't trust you. And then they fixed it and they made it a lot better. And they put seats on the monster, which yeah. was just completely flummoxing. So and yeah. they added that, you know, the, the club behind, behind, uh, way up behind home plate. They added the seats on right field. They made the runways nicer. They added more food. They blew out the street behind the park and now it's fun to go there and they saved it. Yeah. I never, ever in a million years would have expected it was savable. And I, I, Jason, yep. I remember all that stuff. They're going to knock down the Phoenix building and put the park next to Fenway. Yeah. Turn Fenway yep. into like, they were talking about turning into hotels at one point. Um, <laughs> but I think, there's two great things about Fenway. One, so my son was there and it was like, I wanted him to sit on the side behind the Red Sox dugout because that's the side where you go in and it's just green. Everything's green and you see that giant wall and it's just like this incredible, awesome experience. Yeah. Um, that's one. Two is how intimate it is. And the fact that it's hard to get seats and it's 35,000. It's like trying to get into the hot restaurant. Whereas you build, has anybody ever said, man, I can't get in a Yankee stadium. Never. Hard yeah. to get seats. No. You Never. can get seats anytime you want. There's no urgency to get but, seats. So it's kind of genius. Going, right? right? I mean, this is where we're going with the sports experience. I mean, you guys have talked a little bit about, you know, the Home Depot thing, which I think will be interesting to watch with the Chargers. I mean, I wish it wasn't the Chargers. I wish it was a really hot ticket. But the idea of NFL football being played in a 35,000-seat stadium um, if you talk to anybody in the NFL, one of the issues that they really have in the league is just the live, you know, the in-game entertainment value, whether whether or not it's worth it for people to go. You know, the end-of-season tickets, you guys have written about this as well. You know, the, the idea of people putting down thousands of dollars to go see an NFL football game is just getting more and more ridiculous sounding because, you know, A, it's too expensive, but B, the television experience is so good. And so how do you, you know, create an experience that people want to pay top dollar for. And I think intimacy is going to be the way to do it. The 80,000 seats arenas is just crazy town. Of course, the Chargers got 21,000 for their first game in town. So they didn't even fill 32. Right. But preseason, though. NFL but still, game. first, hey, first on, game in a new seat, first game in a new seat, just the curiosity factor of the soccer nobody, stadium. Yeah, nobody nobody cared. The, uh, the, the fun game is going to be the Raiders game because, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I already know that like all the Raider fans want to go. There's only 30,000 seats. A lot of the seats are owned by season ticket holders and it's going to be really hard to get tickets. But I, I, I to me, I, the giant stadium was the one I never understood. That was the first one anyone built where they didn't have to go 85,000 or whatever. Cause you know, if you're in that top tier, like I look at my buddy J bug who his seats got upgraded eventually, but him and his buddies, would go to the Patriots games every Sunday and they would show up, you know, five, six hours before the game. They tailgate, they'd stay for five, six hours after and going to the game was just a part of it. So it didn't really, you know, obviously they would have loved to have better seats, but they just want to be in the building. But really the whole day was the event. And now that now a lot of these teams have changed that where you can't tailgate until it's like two and a half hours before the game. 
two hours after you got to get the F out. And now you're competing against 80,000 people coming in and out of the stadium within this seven hour time frame, And it's just not fun to go. No. So I think if, yeah. if like the giants had to do that over again, I'm sure they would go 50,000. I'm sure they would get rid of that top deck because if you're not making that an all day experience and just your experience is only I'm in traffic for two hours, I get to grow a quick hot dog. Now I'm walking up to the third deck, which is going to take forever. I'm really far away. I don't get to see other football games. It's not as fun. And I think that's why these these games are kind of drifting away a little bit. Yeah, but I feel Jerry Jones is pulling in the other direction. And I, my uncle so that's has the good one. upper deck, but but he has upper deck tickets in AT&T Stadium. And Where he I, go in television. There, I go in there and it feels like I'm in George Lucas's Galactic Senate. <laughs> it's you awesome. Know, so this huge thing. And it feels like I'm, but it, even in the upper deck, it feels like I'm watching the All-22 Yes. It doesn't feel like yeah. I'm watching a football game. You're not game there live. for the game on the, the guys could, in the field. I got to agree. If I understood like schematic football, I would have an amazing view, but I'm like, I can't see. I just like, I'm looking at dots running around. It's amazing. I mean, it's not, it is not a fabulous football experience live. I think in general, when, when they start building these new stadiums, I'm going to be really interested to see what happens with that top tier of cheap seats and whether, yeah, and whether the teams are going to have to weigh a moral obligation, right? Like some some fans can only afford the cheaper seats, so they want to take care of those fans. You don't want to disenfranchise them. But at the same time, those are the seats that anyone can get anywhere on any secondary market now. And you know, you throw in the traffic and the food, and it's like, oh, great, I'll, I'll pay ten dollars to sit way up there in a Clippers game. Well, now I also have to pay for parking. Now I got to worry about what I'm doing for dinner. Whereas I can just stay at home and watch it at home. So you, you have to yeah. figure out whatever that seesaw balance is. And I think a lot of these teams are going to struggle the next couple of years with it. Don't you, Jason? Uh, absolutely. And okay. What do you think? Let's take LA, for example, with the Rams, you know, the plans are already done, but if you throw out the Olympics, you know, which is this wild card for stadium design. Yeah. But if you throw pretend the Olympics aren't happening, what would to you be the ultimate or the optimal seat capacity for a new Ram stadium, 40,000, like 50,000 certainly wouldn't build an 85,000 seat place. I, I, I mean, I, I might be biased on this cause I feel, I, I feel this way about NBA arenas too. I feel like they should be like 14, 15, but yeah. for me, football, it should be like 50 and I would put, yeah. you know, you make the, make the lower tier more seats, have the, have the first set of suites about midway up second tier yeah. for the fans. And then the top tier you'd make suites mm. and maybe over the seats, maybe you have standing room only if people want to go and do that, but I would cram it in. I, I just think it's a better atmosphere, the parking and the, and, and the traffic for football, I think is a deal breaker for a lot of people. Now they just don't want to sit in yeah. traffic for no reason. And it, you're right. It's design rather than size. Because going yeah. to watching the Rams in the Coliseum the other night, it's great. It has a billion seats, but it's great it's awesome. because we're all one thing. Yeah. And even if you're a pie, you're in this one section. And as opposed to park? three levels of suites, uh, I there were two guys standing outside a mini mall commercial parking <laughs> lot. And they said, it's $25. And I was the only person there. And I said... And they pulled, they showed me into a, a space that said towway zone. I said, I'm not going to be towed, right? And they said, oh, no, we're going to stay here with your car all night. Yeah. And when I came back, they were sitting next to my car. It was 
<laughs> kind of unclear whether they had the actual rights to the space, but mm, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. like, if you do that, let's say the Rams are in the playoffs in seven years. It's not realistic, but um, <laughs> ever. So all those people coming in and out for a Rams game, but you don't have the college football rules where you could show up seven hours for the game. You have the rules. I don't know what the rules are for the for the football, but they're two and a half hours before. It's going to be a fucking clusterfuck. It's going to be terrible. What's yeah. going to be fun about that? I hate, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm anti-lines, anti-traffic more than most. Like I'm not even yeah. like, I hate going to Disneyland. Which is un-American. So you're putting you're putting no hope that Elon Musk is going to solve this whole thing by the time the Rams Stadium is is open. We we we've seem to be putting a lot of hope in Elon Musk for a lot of different things. <laughs> uh, quick quick topics, because we we got to roll. Um, the death of the personal essay. What are your thirty second thoughts? I, did it die? Did it I feels miss like this? it's dying. Really? I think we had the heyday of the personal essay like from a couple like of years ago to 2014. And now it seems like it's it's not as potent anymore. Yeah, though I still feel you have the reported quest that is intensely personal. So that it shifted to that. Right. I go off to, you know, the Pacific Northwest in search of the the perfect salmon and then it's really about my, you know, my Your father's journey? death or something. Yeah. What do you think, Jason? <laughs> I think the thing that definitely died was the why I'm leaving New York essay. That one is dead. I don't think I need to read that one more time. Um, you know, I think the personal essay will always survive in some form because let's not forget, like, you know, it, the, the hate read is a very healthy proportion of the audience for the personal essay. So as long as you have, it sounds sad, but as long as you have a significant portion of your reading audience reading it because they can't stand it, uh, you know, there's always going to be a market for you. 74-year-old Pete Vesey. Breaking the scoop of the summer on Patreon. And I checked. I found out about it early because randomly somebody I was following on Twitter on Saturday night tweeted it out. And I went and he had like, Vesey had like a hundred subs on this Patreon for $5 a month. But I'm sure that it's, it's mushroom from that. I didn't even know he was reporting again. I didn't know he was writing again. Has this scoop yeah. that is 20 hours ahead of everyone. Woj the Terminator. Shams, all the ESPN people, has the scoop, wrote in the piece that he didn't call the Pacers or the Lakers because he didn't want them to know they had the scoop because he thought they were going to give it to somebody else so he'd get screwed in the scoop. But he's like, I know I'm right on this. And then it turns out he was right. Brian, weirdest reporting moment of the year? Weirdest and, and maybe the best. <laughs> yeah, because I, I want yeah. I want Peter Vesey versus NBA stars, right? Yeah. Woj yeah. versus LeBron, Stephen A versus KD. That that was a warm-up. Yeah. This yeah. is the true it's like, it's like this is old school, right? This is and, and you saw him yeah. getting into with magic on Twitter. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. It was unbelievable. No, it's it, it's like the Paul Newman in the color of money. That's a very charitable rendering of uh, of, uh, of Pete Bessie. But can we just do one second on like what a figure Pete Bessie is for your audience members who may not have be terribly familiar with his heyday? I mean, this guy was sort of the pre-everything in terms of the NBA insider and, you know, pure New York character, but translated over to the NBA on NBC. And, uh, you know, there was nobody like him. And everybody that everyone loves now in terms of uh, NBA insider, that most of the debt to him. I loved his Friday calm. He actually had a little bit of an impact on me because I loved reading him. I like that he used um, 
he used to jokes. do column contributor. You know, he had good jokes, but he would also, his friends would be in the column, which actually ended up influencing <laughs> me. He had this guy, Frank Drucker, who would be like, calm, calm castigator, Frank Drucker. And Frank Drucker would have some great joke. And I'm like, this is great. This guy brings his friends into it. So for better or worse, yeah. he might influence that. But Pete Vesey, he was just a flamethrower. He's amazing. And now he's yeah. 74 and seems like he has an ax to grind against the Woj type of reporter and i'm kind yeah. of i'm kind of excited to see him battle all the old school people if he's really doing this yeah the next front this war is not magic johnson it's woge right oh yeah woge versus vessi and all like the it seems like he feels like agents are leaking stuff to all these reporters <laughs> Wonder which why he feels by like the way that. is yeah. 1000 percent true and if he starts really just throwing bombs i think it'll be a, a fascinating little wrinkle to our 2017-18 season Last thing we want to talk about, I think you brought this up. Was it one of you two in our emails about the lack of profile exclusives? It was Jason about yeah the uh, Sam Darnold three different yeah I mean profiles. Look, there have been a number of really good Sam Darnold profiles in recent weeks. There was one I believe the first was Bleacher Report. Jeff Perlman did a really good one. Then SI followed up, did a great one. Now, ESPN has another one. All of them individually really good. But I can tell you from experience, like magazines that, you know, you do like celebrity, you know, stories, they're always negotiating a window of exclusivity with these uh, celebrities. There's a reason why you don't get like four Emma Stone profiles coming out at the same time, because the magazines have said like, look, you can't do other press while we do this. We're going to be your one long lead time publication here. And, you know, sports is obviously a different element, but not that different. And it's just strange to me. Like, does it put ESPN at a disadvantage to be like the third out of the gate with a big, long Sam Darnold profile? If you've already read the other two. Are you going to read another one? Or maybe you're just a Sam Darnold obsessive and you can't get an F. I don't know the answer to it, but it just strikes me as kind of weird because in another genre, you would never see this happen because editors would just fight it out. I think we should have some full disclosure here on the Sports Reporters that the person who just made that statement wrote the cover story for Vogue this month on Jennifer Lawrence. Speaking of exclusive, J Law, <laughs> don't and, bring and, that and, crap and was, into don't bring that crap into sports. You glossy magazine writer, you. How dare like, you? Nobody else has this J Law profile. It's just me. <laughs> and it's just I just want to point out to you, suckers, that that's the only Jennifer Lawrence profile See, you're going to read. That was, yeah, next, uh, it was all weeks. it was so third person the way he put that. No, but I, I actually think it is in sports. I mean, Lee Jenkins, you know, how many Russell Westbrook profiles did you read? You know, well, how Lee many- Jenkins is getting the exclusive for all the he's now in that NBA agent playbook where it's like, we want to get this out. All right. We'll give Lee Jenkins the feature. We'll do this podcast and we'll do this in uninterrupt. Like there is a playbook now and you can see they follow it. Yeah. And I think ESPN Mac has their share, but I think you know, the Ronda Rousey or something, right? If I remember correctly, I mean, she did other press. I think the thing about Sam Darnold is if colleges could do that, they would, but there's just not the line that there is for Russell Westbrook, big NBA star, or Tom Brady, whatever. I think Peter King on t- with Tom Brady after the Super Bowl, right? How many, how many Tom Brady things did we read? We, we read one. So yeah. I think there's a, the exclusivity yeah. is, if it's not there, it's certainly creeping in. Yeah. I, and I would yeah. remind everyone, listen to my Kevin Durant podcast this week. Uh, <laughs> Speaking send, of exclusives. Send the emails into the mailbag at theringer.com. No, I, I think I think with the uh, – it's funny with like college – a feature about a college athlete is 99% of the time going to be boring because the college athletes just – college athletes and coaches are all both terrified to say anything, make any waves. Um 
But at the same time, this guy might be one of the best quarterbacks of this decade. And if you're an editor, like if you can get time with that guy, you take the time. Sure. I'm sure we're writing about him. He's fascinating. Oh yeah, no, I get the appeal, and and the individual pieces were all really good. It's just a question of like, is there going to be reader fatigue, and do editors have an obligation to like carve out some kind of like, you know, exclusive window? Yeah, I I look at to me the 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 sweet spot now is like the Hideki Arabu piece, where it's somebody yeah. nobody had even thought to do a piece on him, and that was a really good piece, mm-hmm. and yeah. It stood out. Nobody else had it. The piece that Rachel did today for GQ about Dylan Roof was really great. Incredible. Really, really yeah. good job. And and she went old school on it. I mean, she reported it. She spent months and months on it and talked to everybody. And um, I thought it was a really special piece. But um, yeah, it's tough. Um, Jason, you have a parting shot for us? You're going to take the parting shot this week? Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, if we're going to, like, be loyal to this, classic format we're supposed to like end with a parting shot and i believe as the uh guy who gets up three hours earlier in the day than you west coasters i'm i'm prepared um so should i look straight to the camera as i do this yeah look at the camera to chuckle hold on brian do chuckle. you have your fake laugh ready yeah fake chu- are you doing yeah. fake chuckle or i'm gonna fake do laugh? the kind of hearty bill yeah. conlon laugh yeah i'm ready okay, all right so, i'm gonna do the loop of coke. Right. i'm kind of jealous of this guy's points and i'm gonna undermine it with my laugh laugh <laughs> all right I say this cautiously as a father of a youth baseball player and also as someone who fears the wrath of helicopter sports parents. But I think it's time to tap the brakes a little bit on televising the Little League World Series. Oh. Make no mistake, the Williamsport tournament is about as good as it gets for an American sporting event. But back when the sports were potters were children, way, way back in the pre-iPad, <laughs> pre-Snapchat, <laughs> 1800s... <laughs> <laughs> we maybe saw a final or a semifinal at best. Now, like everything else in sports, the Little League World Series today has gone to saturation coverage thanks to television's hunger for any live event it can program. Mm. You can watch a month's worth of qualifying live. There are Little League players and teams who are almost overexposed by the time they get to Pennsylvania. Believe me, I know that playing in this tournament is a once-in-a-lifetime thing for kids. I really could have got this job, guys, couldn't I? Yeah, I'm this is great. Well. I'm really enjoying this. You, right. need, you needed like an Eclipse tie-in, but yeah, you're, 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 you're rocking yeah. around here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, listen, I know this tournament is a big thing for kids. I would have given away the family dog for a shot. Ah! And, being, <laughs> and being on TV is unbelievably cool. But amid all the rethinking we're doing about exploitation in college and high school sports, I'm not sure we should be picking off kids in elementary and junior high for four weeks of global corporate entertainment. It may be a corny, 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 it may be a corny passe sentiment in 2017, but I don't care, gentlemen. Let the kids be kids. Oh, wow. Great ending. Great ending. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was good. I will tell you this. I as, think I, I. Oh, go ahead. Can I? Uh, is that a short list for a Peabody? You think? I mean, we'll submit it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Contractually, we have to. I think. Yeah, it's in your contract. I will say this as as the father of a twelve year old uh, daughter who just was in a soccer tournament all weekend that at one point seemed like it was going to come down to penalty kicks, but they lost two to one in the finals because the uh, the home team had crooked refs. But uh, I can't imagine watching my kid on ESPN in a little league game, how petrifying yeah. that must be. Incredible. When they show the the parents in the stands 
I, yeah. I would just be shitting a brick. Like, and not because you want to win. I mean, obviously you want your kid to win. You want them to do well, but you, you're really thinking like, I don't want them to embarrass themselves. I don't want them to be the goat. I don't want something terrible to happen would be, I guess would be the overriding fear the whole time. I'm not positive. It should be televised. I still, I've never really fully come to grips with it. It's too young. 12 year old. My daughter's freaking 12. Like I'm around a 12 year old all the time. They are not mature yet. Like it's, it's a lot to ask to put these kids on ESPN and HD. And it does, it does. I don't know. It does leave me unsettled. You guys don't know yet. Your kids aren't old. Enough. Yeah. Not old enough, but, but great extra points for referencing your kids. In Thank your parting you. shot. Thank no, you. no, I think that's that's yeah. gold, right? It's good. If I had a counter parting shot, I would have brought my kids into it. Um, well, this was <laughs> this was awesome, fellas. Let's let's try to do this Ugh. more often than once a summer. Thanks to Proper Class, stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start wearing custom shirts that fit perfectly because you created them by answering ten easy questions. Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit. Remakes are free. The Proper Cloth team makes it super easy to do. Go to propercloth.com/bs and our gift code. BS to save $20 on your first shirt again, propercloth.com slash BS gift code BS. Thanks to SeatGeek for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on NFL tickets. Use promo code BSNFL. Thanks to Miller Lite, the presenting sponsor of our newly relaunched website, theringer.com. Don't forget about Southweek. Don't forget about our last episode of Talk the Thrones. Don't forget about the rewatchables. New podcast coming this week. Keanu, uh, what are you working on, Brian? Ooh, uh, I gotta, gotta, you don't gotta, have to tell us yeah, anything just, you're always, excited about. I feel you always ask me this and I always, I always kind of bad away. You're always up to stuff. Yeah. yeah just, I'm up gonna, to... just a little twinkle in my eye. Yeah. Stuff right. coming. Twinkle. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, what about you? Going to the fight. I'm going to the fight. Great. Great. Try to, here's, here's my dream for you this week. All right. You've won assignment. Yeah. You have to get into an Arash Markazi Instagram picture. <laughs> That's your one assignment for this week. He is one of my five favorite Instagram accounts. And I just, just go look at his Instagram account at the pictures. And I want to see if you can get in on one of those. That's my one, one assignment for you this week. All right. I can do this. Right. I know I can do How late do I have to stay out to make it happen though? I don't, if you see him, just tackle him and get in, get into a picture. My favorite <laughs> accounts are, are him um, Hall of Meat, skateboarding accidents, and drunk people doing things, which I just found out about in the last week, which is just Tate. Do you know about that one? No, that sounds good. Tate, if you're on that, if you're ever on that Instagram account, you'll know something has gone horribly wrong with yes, your ringer experience. Uh, Jason Gay, a pleasure as always. Brian Curtis, thank you so much. Don't forget about Brian's piece today on the ringer, and we'll be back two more times this week on the Bill Simmons podcast. Until then. I wanna see them on the 